Ignite your curiosity with Austin next. We're watching Austin transform from a thriving ecosystem into a global superstar. With our host, Jason Scharf, we aspire to better comprehend the true nature of innovation. Together, we will uncover what makes a successful ecosystem and navigate the technologies shaping our future. Now let's dive into what's next. Austin is adapting to and building the future in real time. I'm Michael Scharf. We are exploring and driving our transformation into the next innovation powerhouse. I'm Jason Scharf. I'm a bio-researcher at UT to the assembly line worker at Tesla, from the musician on 6th Street to the coder at Dell. And with the founders, funders, and early employees of the next great startup, we are all Austin Next. Austin X is still on the road, and today we're visiting another point of the Texas Triangle. Houston's been on a tear the last few years, growing from about $400 million in startup funding in 2018 to crossing the $2 billion threshold last year. There's the Texas Medical Center, the ION, Rice University, and many other influential and growing institutions. Today we dive into the Houston innovation ecosystem with Lawson Gao and Chris Buckner, the forces now behind Houston Exponential. Lawson Gao is the founder and partner of Gao Companies, a holding company at the intersection of sports, media, and innovation. He's also the CEO of Houston Exponential and the Chief Strategy Officer of SportsMap Tech Acquisition Corp. Prior to these projects, Gao founded the Canon, a network of startup innovation hubs that provides startup businesses, investment groups, governments, corporations, and other strategic organizations with creative workspace and a variety of innovation solutions. Lawson is a board member of Central Houston Organization, an entity responsible for managing much of the funding and strategy associated with the growth and development of downtown Houston, and also a member of the Houston 2026 World Cup Bid Committee. Chris Buckner is currently the co-founder of Talk, the largest sports festival in the world to be held in Houston in the fall of 2023. Chris is also one of the partners and CRO at Houston Exponential. In his past, Chris was the co-founder and CEO of Mainline, an eSports tournament software and event management company focused primarily on the collegiate market. In addition, Chris co-founded FanReact, a social CMS licensed software company, was the host of the FanReact Hour, a nationally syndicated radio show, and the co-host of an all-new eSports television show, The Meta, that aired locally and on Twitch. Lawson, Chris, welcome to the Austin Next Podcast. Thank you for having us. This is a, we, we do our own show, so it's kind of fun to be on the other side of it, getting grilled. <laughs> yeah, no, very excited about the conversation. Thanks for having us. And, and that is by the plan, by the way, it's just absolute grilling, you know, just be firing left and yeah, right. really so. hard hitting. This is yeah. an ambush interview. You good. just don't know it yet. Good, good. I'm sweating. <laughs> All right, so we're going to start really, really big, 100,000 foot level. Describe the Houston innovation ecosystem. What sectors are here? What are the big companies? What type of areas are VCs funding? Let's just kind of start at the big picture. That's a big question. Mm -hmm. Well, that's why you said big picture. Yeah, yeah. Well, I just read a stat that Houston is growing at 10.5 times the speed population growth as Chicago. So we're very soon going to be the third largest city in the world. And we, until very recently, have been a pretty significantly underperforming innovation economy and, and kind of startup community here. And there's been this big push over the last six years to really get it right and to catch up. And our neighbor, uh, uh, Austin, has just done such a better job of it that I think we've got sort of a chip on our shoulder in that regard. But the yeah, the, the 30,000 foot view of it would be that yeah, we're a, a big town with big legacy industries and we are just starting to kind of figure out what kind of tech sectors we can develop and sustain and how we can leverage 
those legacy industries to uh, develop kind of a more fast paced and higher velocity startup ecosystem. But, but you would say that it's been led traditionally by the energy sector. We do have a pretty strong kind of the medical side of things. We're trying to obviously work on the sports uh, piece, but traditionally it's been that energy. Yeah. The whole history of Houston is found in 1837 oil, made everybody a lot of money. They turned around and spent a lot of that money on a gigantic medical district. And those are the two actions or activities that, that support most of the jobs here. Mm-hmm. And everything's kind of evolved out of that. Yeah, I was just at TMC just a week ago, and it is hard to fathom how large it is. And then, of course, recently with the Bioport being announced and how much it's growing, I think it's in TMC3. And yeah, so, the Helix and stuff like that. Is that what it's called? Helix? Yeah, yeah. Well, the, 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 build, the build out itself is in the shape of like a DNA Helix. Mm. And it's tons of money. And they're doing amazing stuff at TMCX as well. Like, uh, but yeah, it's definitely been led by those two. And how have you seen the interactivity between those two? Has it purely been from a hey, we made money in oil and gas and now we're going to be spending it in, in medical or has there actually been intersections of talent and way things are being done? I mean, my background is obviously is all in kind of the life science biosector. And when I think of what's coming out of uh, Houston, it tends to be very traditional therapeutics, med device. So how are you seeing kind of those sectors start to interact with each other? I don't think there is a lot of interaction. There's one group that sort of encapsulates the interaction or the crossover between the two, it's called pumps and pipes. And it's like engineers and scientists who are kind of talking about the mechanical and, and scientific overlaps between the way that the human body works from a mechanical perspective and the way that, that support most of the jobs here Mm -hmm. and everything's kind of evolved out of that. Yeah. I was just at TMC just a week ago and it is hard to fathom how large it is. And then of course, recently with the Bioport being announced and how much it's growing, I think it's in TMC three. And yeah, so the Helix and stuff like that. Is that what it's called? Helix? Yeah. Yeah. Well, the, 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 the build, the build out itself is in the shape of like a DNA Helix mm. and it's tons of money and they're doing amazing stuff at TMCX as well. Like, uh, but yeah, it's definitely been led by those two. And how have you seen the interactivity between those two? Has it purely been from a hey, we made money in oil and gas and now we're going to be spending it in, in medical or has there actually been intersections of talent and way things are being done? I mean, my background is obviously is all in kind of the life science biosector. And when I think of what's coming out of uh, Houston, it tends to be very traditional therapeutics, med device. So how are you seeing kind of those sectors start to interact with each other? I don't think there is a lot of interaction. There's one group that sort of encapsulates the interaction or the crossover between the two, it's called pumps and pipes. And it's like engineers and scientists who are kind of talking about the mechanical and, and scientific overlaps between the way that the human body works from a mechanical perspective and the way that pipes work in oil and gas. But it's sort of a forced stretch almost to try to kind of find common ground. And I, I just, I don't really, maybe correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't know that there's like a a gigantic overlap. No, I, I don't think so. I, I think they kind of stay in their own lanes. I think it's kind of funny though, that it started by the support of the, you know, oil and gas was like, let's do this. And it's been great. I mean, what you'd say we're kind of in the top two or three, you know, Boston and us when it comes to med tech and um, the initiative. So I think it's good. It's interesting because one of the stories that I've seen over and over again is the energy guys getting together with the blockchain guys. Mm-hmm. 
And that became a story last year after China kicked all the miners out. Have they come and stayed? Have they come and just taken their money and gone? What's going on there? I think that the, quote, energy guys are starting to educate themselves on a more kind of future-looking and more tech-based kind of innovations as ways to continue to evolve their industry. But it feels slow. I think uh, we were talking about this the other day. Well, I don't think I, I, I know that the, those legacy industries that we have here, kind of biotech and engineering and, and well, and then you could even broaden it to say kind of like space and kind of harsh environment work and industrials and stuff. A lot of that stuff doesn't really easily, can't, can't be easily lent to kind of evolving into being at a, like an innovation sector. They're not, they're, they're sort of famously uh, siloed and red taped and bureaucratic and cautious because they can be, you know, dangerous and there's lots of IP and, but they're not fast paced and porous and innovative by nature. And so it's been harder for Houston to leverage their legacy industries because of the nature of those industries than the time other cities have had uh, kind of leveraging their, their inherent capabilities and strengths to emerge as a leader in different tech sectors. Where do you think Houston fits though with the post COVID or the during COVID realization of the unsexy stuff really matters. Supply chain really matters. Manufacturing really matters. You know, we're seeing much more of the, you know, deep industrial manufacturing technology. We would talk about all the things you just said, space, all these harsh environments, very physical. Has Houston pivoted into that since that becomes more of a, an innovation space that you're also seeing some, I think, cutting through the tape with things like SpaceX and Andrel and, you know, that the, the legacy sectors are actually seeing some innovative companies now, right? Yes. We, we own the unsexy stuff here. We embrace <laughs> it. And Houston is not a sexy town. It's a, a multicultural, gritty, real town that isn't trying to make the next dog walking app. It, we're trying to innovate in real ways that allow us to save lives, change lives, and find new worlds, and really. create the next catwalking app. Right. Yeah. It's about cats. We big cat not, yeah. Here. We're just really against dogs for some reason. <laughs> but, uh, but actually, no, one of the challenges for Houston has been the sprawl. And when you talk about creating innovation districts, density and collisions and cluster economics come into play. And that's really hard when you're so sprawling and there's not like one downtown Houston. There's like eight, it's like fiefdoms of like megaplexes that are all just bound together by connective tissue. Did, and you, like, did you know that the, the, the tallest building in the world that is not located in a downtown region is here in Houston? Over, the Williams Tower? Yes. Oh, really? Isn't that crazy? Yeah. It's the tallest yeah. building in the world outside of a downtown region. So that's representative of just these like business clusters that we have that are loosely bound by the borders of the city. And if you read anything about innovation districts, it reads like a how-to manual for like spreading disease. It's like collisions, interactions, <laughs> jamming people, mashups of people interacting with each other and like sipping coffee out of the same cup. Like it, it really placed a lot of emphasis on density and human-to-human -human interaction. And so then the question was, what does an innovation district look like in a COVID and then post-COVID world? And the, it required not a not totally digital, not totally physical, but like a, a sort of a fidgetal solution. Did you if just you, come up with that? Yeah. Is that like your it, thing? It's pretty good. Yeah. Right. yeah. Uh, 
but, breaking ground, right? Yeah, I know, right now. yeah, yeah, right. This is uh, this. These are the hard hunting, cutting, <laughs> yeah. cutting topics that we're going to get into. But uh, but that I think hurt other more developed, more dense, and geographically mashed together innovation districts and other communities than it did Houston because we're really sprawling and we we're already a little closer to figuring out ways to interconnect and be dynamic and be be collaborative without always having like everything happening within an eight block radius of walkability. Right. I mean, one of the things that we've been, as we've been digging into the history of Austin is that, you know, 15 years ago, it's like, yeah, everyone was at the four seasons downtown. That's where you right. ran into everybody and all that. And then now we are starting to have what Austin is, is not downtown Austin. It goes from Bastrop up to Georgetown, down to San Marcos. And so we're having that, that sprawl, and then it is becoming, I think, in many ways, those kind of mini sectors, right? And that's one of the questions that I, I've been thinking about a lot as when you're going from nothing to something, and right? I've got a new city and you see a lot of things like I think with like, you know, Bradfell's startup community book and, and things that you think in that nature, there is this, as you said, the how-to, we got to smash everybody together. You, you hit some sort of threshold. I don't know what it is. I don't know what it is where there is this kind of, Cambrian, you know, diaspora, right? Where everybody kind of goes in different directions. Now, you, what you do have is maybe the sector perspectives, like, hey, we have all the blockchain, we have all of the the life science. Because one of the things that, and uh, you know, I wanted you to use the talk about the term that you and I talked about uh, previously. When you look at like, you know, Silicon Valley in the history, there, there's there's those things the innovation district, like these these centralized things don't exist. And so it's an interesting when you're trying to build it from a top-down perspective, there's certain ingredients that you need. And probably if we don't have a critical mass, we need to get that critical mass together. But I, I look at things like Austin, like um, Nashville, like Houston, where you, you kind of got that critical mass. Is there one place that you need? Or how, how do you think about driving those, as you said, driving those connections while you are physically apart, having the digital, having lots of different sectors? There's a tension it's a really tough question to answer, but there, there's definitely a tension between uh, naturally occurring innovation districts like Silicon Valley, where there was not a playbook that could yeah. be printed then of like, okay, well, so this is a how-to manual and we just, we're just going to cookie cutter, we're going to apply this now to other cities. That, that didn't, you can't extract that from what happened in Boston and Silicon Valley. And you can't even really extract it from throughout history, other kind of creative clusters that have emerged, whether that's like the Renaissance and salons or uh, the coffee shops in Paris in the 1900s and stuff. I mean, th those things just sort of emerged. There's a tension between that and artificially architecting these things from scratch, which we don't have a blueprint for really. And so some of this is still a grand experiment. But just before this, I, I just just because I thought it'd be interesting, I Googled innovation districts and then hit news. And all of the news is on the other end of the spectrum saying like, OSU declares innovation district to be here. Or, you know, like um, said, uh, Ohio State designates this region to be, you, that's not how like innovation economies work. Yeah. You can't, it's innovation imperialism. You can't just impose your will upon a community and say, well, this real estate development that we're declaring an innovation thing is now going to be where innovation happens. That's not, that's the wild ass other end of the spectrum. Well, and I, I was, this is weird. You and I have kind of talked about this. I was with somebody the other night uh, having a beer 
and they were very passionately saying like, you can't fabricate it. And he was like, you want to know why Silicon Valley became Silicon Valley? It was because he had a couple companies that had nothing. They, they didn't partner together to come up with like whatever. They just like busted their ass, had a huge exit. And then they started investing in the other companies that were like kind of like in the area and taking shots. And it was like, they didn't, they weren't trying to turn that thing into something. It was like, yeah, there was two companies at the time or whatever, you, however you want to say that, that like, they had big, big wins and they had exits and then they started pumping back in where, and this guy was like yelling at me. I was like, dude, calm down. I didn't, I wasn't arguing with yeah. you at all. <laughs> Stop insulting him. <laughs> yeah. But as a, but as a model for economic development for cities, you can't just be like, yeah, it'll just be, you know, it'll emerge organically. Like don't do anything, be hands off. They want to have some sort of strategy for it. And I think the the slip up or the, the temptation is that like, okay, we're going to invest a lot of money into trying to create from a real estate perspective, the right conditions for creativity and innovation to thrive. But that's usually not involving the creators and innovators themselves. And that's where they go wrong. One more thing about that though. I've seen this tried several times and the controlling entity, whatever it is, always assumes it's going to happen faster. Any incubator accelerator innovation district that I've ever seen that's successful, regardless of how it was started, is a seven to 10 year process. And now maybe even longer because now it takes a longer time to go from napkin to exit. And these entities don't have the patience, it seems, to want to go that, that distance. They like having the ribbon cutting. They like, and then when it comes time for the third year budget or the fourth year budget, there's no interest anymore. Yeah, and particularly when you're talking about political cycles, the people who made those policies or were involved in cutting that, that ribbon, they're not even in office anymore. And so a lot of times when, it, when these things are politically or university led, there's a changing in the priorities and the people. And that's why like startup communities, the Brad Feld book, he says these things need to be entrepreneurially led because they're not going to become impatient. The community that they're growing is for them. Like, and and it should be slow because these things are incredibly complex. These are complex systems. They are dynamic and they, they're, they're movements of humans building things. It, you know, it's, it's not just policy and procedure and, you know, real estate development. Well, on a step back, we talk about these things, especially when they're being driven, take a long time. Houston's growth over the last six years is extraordinarily impressive Based on the numbers, it was like a 5X increase in startup funding from 400 million to 2 billion last yeah. year. Like, well, well that, that was based on embarrassment. It feels like, slow, we, by the way. We though. were, we were th embarrassed. Well, yeah. First of all, yes, there was this rallying cry. A wonder, I don't want to shortchange what Houston's accomplished because on the one hand, it feels like, boy, the gears of progress are grinding at a very, very slow rate and we're all restless, but it's a healthy restlessness that we have. On the other hand, there has been an amazing rallying behind this initiative by a, a, a large group of stakeholders all running, sprinting at the same thing. And it's been great. Well, I want to, I want to brag on Lawson a little bit here. Don't get a big head, bigger head. Cause you know, you just got big. Well, head. it's a podcast. They can't see the that's size true. of my well, head. That's, so. It's large. The, so we, we had this meeting when, when we were starting our new endeavor together for the first time, uh, cause we've been friends for a very long time. We went and met with the city, one of the certain organizations, and we were able to get the meeting with them very, very, very quickly. And we were able to like get their interest and even support like in a day, essentially. 
And when we walked out, I said to him, I think you even joked with me. He said, man, six years ago, that was so hard to kind of like move things forward, not on the fault of the cities, but by any means, but because of the work that you've done grading the, the, a lot of the innovation ecosystem with the Canon and that kind of stuff, it has opened the door to speed things up. I think you, when you agree, like now the city in, in a lot of different ways, whatever organization is like very much like, yeah, let's, let's, let's kind of come up with some ideas. And I think that it, while it was a slow process, now it is speeding up really, really fast. And, that, and that's the tactical question that I want to get into is, you have the embarrassments you have the, you know, uh, and for, yeah, if you want to tell a story about it, you know, the Amazon HQ, right. Sure. For, for what the embarrassment was, but then, okay. So everybody's running in the same direction and saying we we're this time it's different. We're embarrassed and things. That doesn't actually change anything. So what, what tactically that was done differently this time that seems to have had an effect? Yeah, it's a good question. Uh, Cause I think when we were talking earlier, I was saying the, uh, the history of, Houston's innovation initiative efforts is littered with the dead bodies of failed attempts. Like it, it, there's been a lot of tries and fails. And I just want to note that, yeah, the startup genome recently ranked us the fifth in the world in terms of fastest emerging ecosystem. So whatever we've done has worked, but it definitely has not been one thing. 1991, we created the Houston Technology Center, and that didn't really move the needle in any way that anybody, any of us were happy with. And then... Really, everything started. I never thought that Amazon was going to select Houston as the site for its second headquarters. Amazon did not think that they were going to either, but uh, <laughs> we didn't even make the top 20 of candidates when they published it. And so for some stakeholders in Houston, that was a thing that they could really sell, that they could really use as a, as a, a rallying cry to people and whatever works. I mean, whatever gets people pumped up to go and change uh, burning platforms are important. Like the, yeah. the San Diego, which, you know, where we came from modern ecosystem came about because of the defense cuts in the nineties. And you had a very defense based city that said, now what? Yeah. Right. And so people got together and said, okay, we need to look at our other, our other things and rally together and create what became the modern day San Diego ecosystem. Well, yeah. And, and so you brought up a, a I think you had the exact number, you know, it's what was it? 300 million in venture capital uh, or funding back in 2013, 2014, up to 2.2 billion in 2021. And uh, when you look at that, obviously that's great. Um, but again, yes, of course we've done things to like improve things, but there are three companies, right. That really pushed that needle, which was, well, blinds kind of started things before that big chunk came in. They were our, our big, one of our big things, but you had uh, cart, a lot of funding coming into that. You had the space, which what was the... So you started a list of three and you only knew uh, one yeah, of them? I think I knew one. Um, you no, really, no, 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 really backed yourself I, in uh, the corner no, 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 The space, uh, um, doesn't matter. The reason I bring that up though is that's not something that's planned where we went in the, the city was like, oh good, we did this initiative in order to get whatever. It was like, well, you had three companies that were busting their butt and raised a ton of money and they were here in town. And so that, I, I don't know, sometimes I'm like, I think that that was a bit organic. It was three companies but, but because and i'll i'll relate it back to the question that you asked of like what now has worked it's because like building an ecosystem is like a nine-way chicken and egg you need it's not just one thing that needs to happen it's like a million things and those things then create the conditions for those companies to actually grow up mm -hmm. here attract talent here stay stay here and attract enough funding to scale here and and so it's not really an accident if you create the conditions for the accident to happen. That right? is true. But failed efforts. One was Houston Technology Center. Another was then, I don't know, 14 years later, Station Houston. They're both gone. 
And they both were not sufficient because they were the government and big corporations saying, we're going to centralize innovation and it's going to be this one thing and everything has to be about this thing. And then that's what's needed to be the catalyst. The reason that I think we've moved the needle now is that it's not been one thing. It's been like 32 things. We've raised money to, to fund the expansion of top tier accelerators into the city we have um, Greentown Labs, that's a clean and green tech startup hub that's now expanded from Boston to Houston. We have lots of different creative co-working spaces and incubator spaces, venture funds that expanded here. We created a, a, um, a corporate fund of funds where we raised money from corporations to put it in to a fund. Where, this, this is the HX Venture? This is the mm-hmm. HX Venture mm-hmm. Fund, yep. Uh, to go invest in venture capital funds to then spend more time looking at startups in Houston we have pulled, literally pulled startups from Silicon Valley and other cities back into Houston in any way that we could. Uh, yeah, so that's, that's an interesting one. I want to uh, kind of pull the thread on a bit. One of the big things in Austin has been the migration of talent companies and capital, right? We have big name VCs coming. We have companies like Oracle and Tesla moving their headquarters here. And then obviously lots of people. And I know Houston is growing. And I remember it was interesting uh, just because I'm a ridiculous data nerd, I was looking at, you know, the census data. And if I remember correctly, Houston had a larger, you know, population growth than Austin, but it was, I think it was something like, and I'm making up numbers, like 70% of Austin's growth was migration and like 30% was, you know, births and, and the like. And it was much more on the natural growth in Houston. So where are you seeing, how is like the, the migration and the growth affecting Houston? It's good. I think we are reaping what we've sowed in over the last couple of years. So 2012 to 2017, more people ages 25 to 35 migrated to Houston, a third of whom are knowledge workers, however you want to define that. And so we're seeing that too. It's definitely lower profile than the headquarters and venture firms that have moved into Austin. I think HP moved here, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And Austin has seen unbelievable meteoric growth. It's crazy. Uh, But Houston's gotten to experience some of that as well. We still have struggled to attract sort of classic venture-backed tech giants here. But a lot of times, because of the energy industry here, have been able to attract a lot of talent. And it's just, we've got a lot of talent locked up in big, giant, slow-moving corporations. So some of the work we've got to do is dragging them out of those environments into the startup world. One of the things you obviously need is the, the acceptance of failure, the risk-taking cult. Like, is that in Houston that is pulling mm-hmm. those, those people out or is no. it? No, yeah, we don't have it. it. Our culture is bad as it relates to startups. Well, I'll, I'll tell a quick story and I won't name anybody, but like there are, uh, you know, angel groups. Uh, I mean, there's hundreds of them and uh, to them risk it's, you know, angel. What, what is the actual stat for an angel um, investment in terms of failure of that company. It is. It's, it's one out of 10. Yeah. yeah. Okay. High. As an, as an angel high. investor, it's high. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. And I, uh, you know, I, you and I have made small investments into friends' companies and we both go, when we do that, we go, I'll never see that money again. That's what our mind goes like that. Right. And then you have these people here in town who put in the, a little amount, they call themselves angel investors. And then they, I mean, it happened to me. They were very angry when things just weren't going very well. And I'm, and, and you sit there and you go, you put in $20,000 into a, you know, $5 million company and you're the one that's coming and like being mad. 
And like, it just is frustrating because that, that's the whole purpose of an angel it, uh, network and is to take risks and, and, and invest in startups that are very, very high risk. That's why they're early stage. And in that, to me, you know, I'm very overly passionate about this because it happened to me is like, well, hang on. What do you want me to do? Like, it wasn't even that bad uh, of a scenario. And so just to echo, it, it's just not great here. The risk profile of the investors is just much more timid. It's than getting, it's else. getting better, but there's a generational effect of ecosystems where investors just psychologically, they invest back into what they know and how they made their money. We have a lot of people here who made their money. The people who would be angel investors, uh, they made their money in oil and gas and real estate. So they traditionally are attracted to investing into that stuff. When they are dragged into other stuff, there's at least an educational curve, uh, if not a real sort of knee-jerk reaction to the difference in investing in those companies. Okay, is that, what, is that what drives the risk profile? Because if anything, with the oil and gas entrepreneurs here making their money in and I don't know the numbers on the oil and gas industry, but if you sink a well, it's not guaranteed you're going to no. get oil. No, you, you would, would think you, you the, would the think. reputation is that Houston is where you go to take risks. Yeah, you would think that like we've got the like DNA of the boundless entrepreneurialism of the, of the Texas wildcat are pumping through our veins, right? But it's not about risk; it's just about the the category, really, for lack of a more sophisticated okay. term. Like risk is risk. We have risk takers here, but you get comfortable with something and that's where you are comfortable taking the risk. And we don't have a lot of successful tech founders who have had an exit and have some disposable income to invest into other newer tech founders, just period. At the same time, it's not unreasonable. So while I do, I'm, I invest in this class, but I also invest in the sector that I know. So consumer brands, B2B, like I don't touch that stuff because I don't know how to, you know, I don't know how to assess it. I don't know what looks good. So I focus all on life science and health tech and the things that I know. So at one point you're like, yeah, we need to invest. At that point, it's a completely reasonable and natural reaction to invest in what you know. Yes. I'm not actually criticizing it. I think it's completely reasonable. I think it's uh, psychologically very rational. And, but I, but I think just as we talk about the Houston culture, there's that, that investor issue but there's also just, it's not as cool to be a founder here. The universities aren't bringing other founders to the universities to say, hey, look, entrepreneurialism is a path. It doesn't pay as well as Exxon does here, yeah. you know? And so there's a lot of like, there are a lot of forces that oppose the entrepreneurial lifestyle here. When, when you go to Austin, you can walk the streets and be struck by the tech founderism that is just palpable around in Houston, you can't find it. You have to go really searching. I remember graduating from Rice University here in 2013 in undergrad and not having any idea where to find entrepreneurs. And that was one of the reasons I wanted to be a part of this big attempt at a solution is that there's, it's not being celebrated and it's not cool and it's not something that you can look around and find other success stories and say, oh, I want to be like that guy or that gal. We're having a lot of, we're focusing on a lot of the challenges. I want to go a little positive for a moment. Just um, doom and gloom here. No, and one of the big things. <laughs> so that we're we, both moving to Austin. <laughs> <laughs> well, well we, we've been big proponents, like personally, and I know there's this bit, the monikers held a lot. Like I, I, I've never liked the Silicon X, Silicon Hills, Silicon, Va or not Valley, obviously Silicon Beach. 
the point is we always say like, we don't want to be the next Silicon Valley. We want to be the first Austin. And that actually means it is something different. We're not gonna look exactly like Silicon Valley, the things we can learn and so forth. And so a lot of it means you're leaning into the uniqueness and specialness of that region. So in that case, then what is, would you say the special sauce of Houston? Yeah. Well, so first of all, when the mayor said, we're going to be Silicon Bayou, I wanted to die. Like, first of all, we can't be that. We we cannot, as we talked about before, there was no blueprint. We, we cannot don't follow that. Sand. We <laughs> Right. We, we, we can't, there is not a playbook to be followed. And <laughs> sorry, I, I'm and, only here for and, this. And Galveston is so <laughs> ugly of a beach. Yeah. And, and so <laughs> there's just not. Sorry, but sand. I just had a laughing fit at that. <laughs> yeah. that but, but so, so we'll, we'll cut all this yeah, out. We'll cut this is all garbage. No, no. But, but so first of all, comparing ourselves to a city that creates unattainable and also directionless a path that is, you know, not followable and not actionable without a playbook that like, that's not constructive. Second is I will also be very bothered if we start calling ourselves the next Austin. We don't need to be the next anything. We need to be an innovation city that is uniquely Houston with it, with its own Houston flavor. And actually I don't just want that that's required because we talked about the sprawl for one, we cannot do what has worked to some degree in cities like Philadelphia and St. Louis, where we just create one epicenter, one node of action packed knowledge spillover and collisions because we are 600 miles. We can fit. What was I saying before this, that uh, like Chicago, Detroit, Philly, and, and Baltimore could all fit inside of Houston. Like we cannot be a dense city. We're the fourth largest in size, soon to be third and 89th in density. We will not be dense. So we have to create our own Houston solution. We have to solve the sprawl. And there's lots of different thoughts of how we can still accomplish that. But that's just one of the many reasons why we don't want to copy a model that other cities have done. We want to create our own model. Well, and you had the part of the question was something that we've talked about. Um, what is the nature of the people in Houston that what is our uh, special sauce? And I think part of it is the being proud of the fact that we are a little bit more, and this is not a knock by any stretch, but like we're more like we care about rolling up our sleeves rather than having uh, like a super hip space to work all the time. You know, like, and it sounds like I'm being judgy. I'm not, you said that better nope. than I did, but yeah. it was like, we, we just like, ah, we don't care about that. Like we just want to kind of get stuff done. But, but you're just, you're putting your finger on sort of one of our character sure. traits, but, and, but the larger kind of conclusion is that like for this to work and be uniquely Houston and be embraced from the bottom up, it needs to feel like Houston and be by Houston for Houston and be culturally led and tap into the kind of the spirit and the history and the ethos of our city. And if we try to just become the branding of, I mean, having the city say Houston's going to be Silicon Bayou, we're, we're proud Houstonians. We freaking hate that. We don't want to be that. We want to be our own. We want to be Houstonian, but we want to just also evolve it, evolve the city that we love into being a bigger, faster, stronger, cooler, sexier, more nuanced, more multicultural, more delicious city. And so, so then what's your, what do you, what's your name for the city then? I don't know. So I did write this article that like, we're so dynamic and gigantic. We're, this is, it's such a sprawling beast of a city with so many different countries and backgrounds and, uh, and, and visitors and, and people who didn't grow up here and people who did grow up here. And it's so complex that 
just saying a nickname or something that sort of beautifully encapsulates the city. I, I think we've always struggled with that. I mean, the keep Austin weird thing is great. Houston's never had a tagline or a slogan. It's never been the Windy City or the Big Apple or, or whatever. It's the city of love. And I don't think we ever will. And I think that's okay. And you know why we have two, I just realized we're so sprawling. We actually have two airports to get to the other side of the, the city. Yeah. His hobbies on the, the you south just realized that. I just realized that it's just to get up to the, the north. But what, the, the city was coming up with a tagline and I'm, I'm totally just like talking. No, so we've it, had a lot. Well, there was one we've that had, we liked. Uh, city with no limits. Yeah. Doesn't really roll off the tongue. We've had. I'm sure uh, there's lots of money spent on that. Yeah, oh, lots <laughs> of money. Some consultant somewhere. Yeah. We've, we've been the energy capital of the world, which is not that. That's just so monochromatic for Houston. I don't want that. There was one that was. I, I'm. I'm literally. You guys won't have even heard of these probably because we just churn through ones that are stupid and are rejected. And oh, then, you didn't like that? Never mind. We didn't, we didn't, no, no. Yeah. yeah so yeah. literally, there was Houston, comma. It's worth it. Pretty uninspiring. Uh, and then it was like Houston. <laughs> that's almost like saying like. Like, oh, come on. You're like, God, like it, we're not that. It's not that bad. It's not that We're all right. Yeah, there was one that was... Um, it's uh, like they stole it out of the West Wing. <laughs> yeah. 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 Houston, come on. B plus. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Right. We're, 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 we're kind of all right. Yeah. Uh, there was one that was um, Houston's hot. Like, come on. Yeah, it is. Yes. Uh, it yeah. is. Yeah, yeah. Now you're just listing facts. <laughs> you're just listing weather facts. Uh, well, here's another so. one that you guys will not use because it's already been taken. But since you're about to overtake Chicago as the third largest city, it is the city with broad shoulders. Who uses that? They did they way did. back when. when like we could just steal it. Wait, as you become bigger than another city, you can just take it. So at some point we're like, nah, we're the big apple now. Like if we get big enough. Yeah, yeah. We're the bigger apple. Yeah, bigger, apple. bigger apple. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> No, all right, never all right. heard of that one. Enough about names and slogans. <laughs> Let's talk solutions. Tell me about Houston Exponential. So Houston Exponential was a sort of quasi-governmental entity that was created right around this, this spirited galvanization of all of the kind of ecosystem development that happened in 2016, 2017, to be the entity with the God's eye view of everything going on. There's going to be startup hubs and creative workspaces and accelerators and industry specific kind of funds and corporate venture funds and events and classes and speakers and programs. But there needs to be, you know, those are all chess pieces on a board. There needs to be who's the chess player, who has the God's eye view, kind of orchestrating all of this and helping fill in the gaps and find solutions for the gaps and guiding, tissue. Yeah, being the connected tissue but also the cheerleader and evangelist for everything. And that's, that was Houston exponential as it was uh, originally conceptualized. And now, well, I think it started that way. We had high hopes for it and it sort of lost steam and was under-resourced to accomplish all the things that we hoped that it would grow into. Uh, and so fast forward um, 2022, we acquire it to really pump it full of energy and, and resources to, to get it to where we, we really want it to, which is um, kind of ubiquitous and a driver of new solutions and the one responsible for publishing reports and dragging venture capitalists in from outside the city and being the, the microphone uh, to the rest of the world about what's happening in Houston and on and on. And led by entrepreneurs. It hadn't been yeah. like four, you know, what, what is it by entrepreneurs, four entrepreneurs? Yeah, it well, so been that. It, it was on the brink of joining the ranks of the Houston Technology Center and Station Houston, those things that were very 
bureaucratic and top down and not by entrepreneurs, did not rep- represent the voice of the entrepreneur, didn't involve entrepreneurs, which is just crazy to me. And Houston Exponential was at, at risk of heading down that path because these things just aren't reflective of what the entrepreneurs need. And so they don't survive. And, and so we're excited now that it's going to be, it, it now is owned by entrepreneurs who are bleeding hearts for all this stuff. We 